0: Well, it's good to see everyone again. I don't know if it's great to see you guys from this sta- angle. I'm usually I'm back there. I'm hiding behind Doug, which I much prefer. So we've been talking about Gideon, and it's been a minute since I've been up here, so I figured I might as well go through and just kind of recap with you guys Gideon's story. So when we found Gideon, Gideon was in a bucket, basically a giant bucket that they used to squeeze the juice out of grapes, and he's beating wheat with a stick. Why? Because he's afraid of being murdered by a roving band, bands of marauders. Not a great place to be. An angel just shows up and's like, "Hey, mighty man of valor." And he's like, "No, not me." And Gideon basically does everything he can to get out of what the angel is telling him to do. I want you to do this. I want you to, you know, I want you to go I want you to, you know, sorry, but I want you to jo- knock down the giant penis statue in the middle of town. He's like, oh gosh, that sounds like a terrible idea. People want to kill him. His faith is slowly growing, though, as he participates. Oh, do we have slides, Marilyn? I'm getting the one sign, the down. Okay. Sideways. We're down. Okay. Well, in this message... Gideon finally becomes who the angel announces him to be, a mighty man of valor. So in this case, uh, the big notes from our last messages were that Gideon was chosen to participate in God's work, just as you are. God gives others a chance at redemption through your service. Gideon's dad is redeemed through Gideon's service. Gideon is no different than you. Gideon comes to this place kind of kicking and screaming, right? He's not quite sure that this is right for him. Just like the rest of us, he has kind of a, he has kind of a moment in his faith where he's like, is this really what I want to do and is this really whom I'm going to be? But God works through him. God is a sower of fields. God is the creator of good things. He tends your field. He harvests fruit from you. We get to be the dirt, which I say kind of jokingly because we are kind of dirt. We Christians get to share in his harvest and his glory. God lets you share in the fruit of his labor. So, oh, hold on. I forgot my Bible, which is important because I can't see the screen. I'm half blind at this point. Apparently, I reached 45 and that was the end. Vision is no mas. <clears throat> All right. Oh, that was the wrong one. That is also the wrong one because I'm in jo- Joshua. Let's go to Judges. But Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of the Moray Valley. And the Lord said to Gideon The people who are with you are too many for me. Give the Midianites to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. We're on slide four, Marilyn. God basically calls the first group. He's like... Get that first 22,000 people out of there. Interestingly, I don't know if you guys realize this, Gideon may have tried to pull a fast one on God in this moment. His faith is not yet where it needs to be, and this is a good indication. Because Gideon, being a good Jew, would have memorized Levitical law and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it says, Officers shall say to their army, army, Has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers, Gideon, leader of the army, shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. But really, in this moment, Gideon's looking on. And can we blame him? He's about to face an army of 135,000 people. And he's got 32,000. If I'm Gideon, I'm like, yes, 32,000. I don't care if you're scared. I'm scared. Welcome to the team. <clears throat> and they're meeting at the spring of Harad. <laughs> oh, we got to go back, Marilyn. got to go back. We're meeting at the spring of Harad. Literally translated, the spring of trembling fear. Sweet. Thanks, God. We're meeting at the, sweet, the spring of trembling fear, the place where fear literally rises up out of the ground and we just got rid of two-thirds of the force. But then God says, hey, let's keep going. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Which is, I'm sure, just what Gideon wanted to hear. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. The same shall go with you. And to whoever I say, this one shall not go with you. The same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue like his dog laps, you shall set him apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people who got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go. Every man to his place. All right. So I want you guys to think back. We just talked about it. Where did we first find Gideon? Gideon is in a wine press and he is separating wheat from chaff. And ironically, the Lord is now separating out the army and winnowing it down. All right, Marilyn, let's go to that next one. So we start with the position where the Israelites have four-to-one odds against them. It's a bad situation for the Israelites. But God says, hmm, four-to-one odds, you guys might say that you're just awesome. Let's, let's parse that back a little bit. So they go to the next group. And the next group, we've got 135,000 people against 10,000. 13 and a half to one odds. God's like, no, that's still too many people. And you've got to think, at this point, think of the guys who have stayed. They're like, okay, I'm not afraid. You know, God's got this. We can take care of this. Awesome. But out of that 10,000, God says, hmm, let's pick 300. And now we've got 450 against one odds. 450 to one odds. How do you feel if you're the soldier who's being sent home? You're like, oh, I took this big step of faith. I stayed. I wasn't scared. And now I'm being sent home. What if you're one of the 300 guys? Well, this didn't work out in my favor. Why do all them? Why do they all get to go home? Right? You are stuck here to face 400. What are the odds that you're going to kill 450 guys in one battle? Not great. <clears throat> the funny part that I always look at, is going through commentary, going through a number of other people that have taught this, They always start talking about, oh my goodness. You know, the reason that God chose these 300 people is because they learned to hold onto their swords and drink water. No. That seems completely tone deaf to what God is saying here. God has just announced, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scale back this army so that you guys can't claim victory. I seriously doubt God's like, okay, we gotta get the 300 best warriors because they gotta kill a lot of people. Right? God just picks 300, probably the most faithful based on what's going to come in the story. God doesn't pick them because they're great warriors. God is indifferent to them being warriors because God isn't going to use them as warriors. But they don't know this in the moment. God doesn't sow as we sow. When God is putting together the field, when God is preparing the field, when God is... Putting down the seeds. He does not sow the way we sow. Our vision and his vision are not in alignment, as we all know. Sin has ruined our ability to see things perfectly from God's perspective. That's why faith is necessary and, simultaneously, hard. Verses 8 through 12. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he, Gideon, went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Okay. God's choice is, hey, are you really terrified of this giant army of 135,000 people? I know what you should do. You should go down and see it face to face. Well, that sounds like a terrible idea. How many of you guys have seen Half Dome? Two people. Well, that's disappointing. All right, a few more. Half Dome. Awesome. Marilyn, bring up Half Dome. So when you see Half Dome, the first you see of Half Dome is that picture over there on the left. It's big. It's majestic. It's far away. Who here has hiked to the top of Half Dome? You get to... This portion of half dome and you're walking up you're like my goodness I thought it was big from far away now it's huge but you haven't looked over the edge yet who's looked over the edge of half dome that's the terrifying moment where if you're the person who's afraid of heights you tell them the key phrase which is don't look down and when you tell someone don't look down what's the first thing they do oh not that And yet that's what God tells Gideon to do. He's like, hey, buddy, you think it's big from here? Just you wait. We're going to go down. But, But look at Gideon. Gideon is now a man who is like, okay, I've seen God working. Why not? At this point, he's winnowed down the army to 300 guys. I guess I'm going. And so Gideon heads down again, just faithfully participating And looking down the whole time, he's at the edge of Half Dome. So what does Gideon find when he goes down? And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and stuck it, struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel into his hand. God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped. He returned to camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Well, everyone, with that being said, what? What? Dreams of baked goods portend disaster? If that's the case, like 90% of the guys in the audience have been close to death since, like, I don't know, adulthood. How does an interpreter come to the conclusion that death is coming? And, you know, it's funny. is going through a lot of interpretations. Again, a lot of people that have read the Bible, they're like, well, barley bread was the feud of the poor people. and All right but barley bread knocking down a tent means everybody's going to die? That seems like a bit of a stretch. If Tom came to Aaron and said he had a dream about a giant fruit tart landing on their house, I seriously doubt that Aaron would be like, well, clearly the French are going to invade and destroy America. Aaron's probably more likely going to be like, okay, you had a dream about a giant fruit tart crushing the house. It probably means you're going to stop dieting. Again. Right? But no, the interpreter hears it, and he's not like, guy, you know, dude, you're a fruit tart. Go away. He hears it, and he's like, immediately, his phrasing is perfect. Unfortunately, I think most people read like this, and then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon and the Joash, the man of Israel. He's like, oh my gosh, Gideon, he's coming, and God's going to deliver us into his hands. There's already this feeling among the troops in camp that Gideon is problematic, which also makes no sense. Clearly, they have scouts out in the area and they've gathered intelligence that Gideon's the leader. That'd be the first case. Second, they must know that they have around 32,000 troops. I mean, if they're any good, they've already seen 22,000 people leave. And these are people that have been starving in the mountains for seven years. Not people that are well-fed, not great warriors. These are people that are literally starving to death. They are so scared of the Midianites that they go into giant buckets to get wheat. A horrible process that's probably painstaking. But that's how desperate they are for food. And yet somehow the Egyptians, the Midianites, they come to the conclusion... It's end. It's the end. We're all going down. So Gideon shows up at the edge of Half Dome, afraid of heights probably. He looks out and he is excited by what he sees. And it's completely counterproductive to everything that we would do as humans. Because God does not tend his field as we would. Again, our vision is not aligned with God's. And obviously God sees much further. God knows all things. It's different. I get that. But it's important to see here that Gideon doesn't make a way. Gideon doesn't divine some magical strategy that will get them out of this. We don't figure out what God wants us to do. That's not your job. Gideon didn't even want to show up for the job. God had to show up, basically compel Gideon against his will with a huge series of miracles. And despite Gideon's protests, because Gideon would prefer to basically be hitting wheat in a bucket out of fear. But what separates Gideon from most people is that Gideon takes that first step. He's like, all right, don't leave. Stay here, I'll go make you some food. And God reveals himself as Gideon continues to faithfully take steps. This disconnect between how God tends his field and how we would tend our field is also what makes faith rewarding. Look at Gideon. He's still terrified. And God already knows. And he's just like, just look, just go down. You're going to hear that you're going to win. Of course, I'm sure Gideon's like, how is that possible? He goes down. And the moment he hears, he worships God. He falls down and worships God and runs back to the camp excited Your job, what God asks you to do, is basically just to be his partner, to be the dirt. Look, I just need you to be the dirt. I'll do all the work, you just be the dirt. That's what Gideon's agreed to do. Gideon's like, all right, I'll be the dirt. And now Gideon is watching as fruit begins to grow from him through God's work. That's got to be an exciting moment. Gideon is running back. He can't wait to tell 300 people how they're going to defeat an army of 135,000. Gideon is finally the mighty man of valor. God, he has arrived, and he is excited about his arrival. Think about the turnaround in a very short period of time just by saying, okay, I'll be the dirt. His response is fantastic. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of Lord and of Gideon. So he runs back to camp. He worships the Lord. He runs back to camp. He's like, okay, guys, we're going to win. Here's, here's your flashlight. Here's some old pottery. And here's a trumpet. You guys ready? Wait, can we, take a, can we back up? I, do I, where's my sword? And I'd like a shield and maybe a spear. No, no. You've got your pottery. You've got your horn and your stick. Let's go. This seems like, this seems honestly like the worst mili- military d- idea ever. That's not how you do war. I have a video of how men do war. I mean, I, so let's, let's watch the video real quick. So I just want to line it up here real quick. This is the Spartans. They're about to go to a place called Hell's Gate, which sounds nice, especially in the summertime. And they are going to fight an army at, you know, in the movie, it's like a million people, but historians think it's like 200,000. Okay, 100,000, 200,000 people, still amazing. So they get some help from some friends because, of course, there's, there's I, got, I don't know, benefit in numbers. And so now we're going to learn about what people see as a good strategy. What a pleasant surprise. This morning's full of surprises, Leonidas. You've been tricked. There'll be more than a few hundred of them. This is a surprise. Silence! This isn't we heard Sparta was on the warpath. We were eager to join forces. If it is blood you seek, you're welcome to join us. Would you bring only this handful of soldiers against Xerxes? You see, I was wrong to expect Sparta's commitment to at least match our own. Doesn't it? You, there. What is your profession? I'm a potter, sir. And you, Arcadian, what is your profession? Sculptor, sir. Sculptor. And you? Blacksmith. Spartans! What is your profession? Is <laughs> he old friend? I brought more soldiers than you did. That's what you do. You bring more soldiers, guys, with rippling six-packs. Big muscles. Spears. Swords. Yeah, and then we're all going to go to Hell's Gate and we're all going to die. Wait. That's man's idea of glory. But God has a different way to glory. Glory. Wouldn't you love to see Gideon's group walk through those two groups and be like, look at them, they got swords. And they're all watching, what do you, you guys have pottery? Yeah, we just are gonna circle them and, you know, make some news and they're gonna kill themselves. <laughs> what? Man's way is swords. Here's an Egyptian sword from that exact area, era. Probably the same kind of sword that they're gonna face. They have these big bronze shields and they got armor. And they've got archers, right? Egyptians invented, I believe, invented the compound bow, the special bow that would shoot farther than a normal bow, right? The Israelites are walking into certain death because what do the Israelites have? They've got a horn, they've got pottery, and they've got sticks. That horn will get to like 100 decibels, Not super loud. Loud, but not super loud. Breaking pottery. Also, surprisingly, about 100 decibels. That's their plan. On top of it, when we see warriors, this is what we think of. Woo! Look at that. He's angry. He's ready to go to battle. He's excited, but these guys haven't eaten in seven years. So what we actually have is We're going to battle with Woody Allen. <clears throat> Horns, pottery, and sticks. Man, this does not seem like a great, great idea. What, what are we doing? On top of that, the Valley of Jezreel, where they're going down to, is about 160 square miles of land. That's as much land as everything from Irvine south to San Clemente in Orange County. But it's all flat, right? There's no hell's gate. There's no like special space they can go to and 300 guys can succeed against 135,000. No, you've got a big, flat, open space that benefits the giant army. <clears throat> Even more I was going through i just thought oh i'll do some quick math on this so you have 135,000 people right now the u.s army can get about 70 guys on an acre of land right but we can stack things high and we have you know high nutrition food we have all these different things and to my knowledge the americans don't take camels into battle anymore <clears throat> but back then i was trying to do some math and it looks like maybe you could get 25 soldiers an acre so if that's the case you have an encampment that's probably eight square miles. Eight square miles. That means from the outside of the camp to the middle of the camp, you've got about a mile and a half of distance to walk. That's a long way. More to the point, if you have all of this space between the outside and the inside, there's all these people and tents and stuff. If your leadership... You aren't hearing pottery breaking, horns blaring, people yelling out. It's quiet where you are. It's 10 p.m. when a shift change takes place, about 10 p.m. But people back then, I'm pretty sure they don't have Netflix, so they're not staying up late watching, right? They're going to bed, you know, largely when the sun goes down. So, a lot of these people have been asleep for four hours. So, if you're just an everyday soldier, you've just woken up, you've just gotten on guard, you've been walking through the desert for probably a good couple months, right? You've been on guard, watch a number of times. This is like, this is old news to you. But the one thing we kind of forget about is they don't have electricity. The best thing they have are the campfires, which only extend their light a couple, you know, ten of, couple tens of feet. Or you can't see past the light in the camp. So where you look out, it is dark. Jake's going to respond soon if he's not asleep. There we go. But it's really dark. Oh, we got the cross up there. Nope. That didn't work quite like I wanted it to. (laughs) This loud horn suddenly blares in the middle of the night. Pottery crashes. And then you hear, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. From 300 men surrounding the camp. You can bring the back, lights back up. And all of a sudden, lights come on around the camp. And everyone's looking on. What's going on? Well, you can't see. All you can see are dots in the night. And this loud racket. But does leadership hear it? No. They're not going to hear a thing. At best, if there is nothing in its way, it'd be about 20 decibels, which is about like a soft whisper in the library. But most of them are asleep. So now you have to imagine that chaos begins on the outside and works its way in to leadership. If a person runs up to you in the dark and you're a guard and you have a spear and you look like the people in 300, what are you going to do to them? You're going to get that spear in him as fast as you can. Right? You're not going to wait and be like, Is that Tommy? From the other regiment? I'm not sure. Just kill him. And they do. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just as they had posted the watch... And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held torches in their hands for, bl- they, hold, they held torches in their left hands and trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I wanted to break pottery, but apparently that's frowned upon. So I was worried I was going to break the stage. What's even better is that they absolutely scatter the 400 and 50 to 1 odds, they scatter this huge army in all different directions. So they managed to split the army up, which is the last thing the army wants. Meanwhile, the Israelites have a very difficult job. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Imagine being that Israelite. (laughs) You've broken pottery. you got a torch in your hand and a horn. And you're just watching people run pell-mell everywhere. Right, realize that if you have three hundred guys surrounding this group, there's about sixty feet between you and the closest guy. The other Israelite, sixty feet. You don't have anybody to like. Oh gosh, there are literally people just running past you, away, leaving their provisions, leaving everything. And I caution you guys strongly against thinking that oh, this is a great story. Oh, it's just it's Gideon. And God does this miracle, and you know, yada, yada, yada. These things still happen today because God is consistent. God keeps his promises through time. God is always faithful. In the Six Day War, Israel was surrounded on all sides by armies of multiple countries. They were all universally united in the idea of wiping Israel off the map. That was their stated goal. Hundreds of And hundreds of miracles occur during the Six-Day War for Israel's benefit. Time after time, Israel's enemies were confused, bound. They made mistakes, silly mistakes. There were errors. The Jews' timing was often perfect, or mistakes became happy coincidences. Everything came together. It's reported that West Point has chosen not to study the Six-Day War. a force of about, you know, they had about a third of the power of the other force. West Point chooses not to study this particular war because they aren't in the business of studying miracles. That's what a person from West Point is purported to say. So I decided I was going to share one story with you guys. The one that I always think is, is kind of simultaneously funny and amazing. Yisrael, a cab driver and paratrooper reservist, was sent to take the Tehran Straits, and he recalls yet another incident. The Israeli soldiers didn't have to parachute out of airplanes. They landed like spoiled tourists in the airport because the Egyptian regiment, regiment, which was on guard there, fled before the Israeli trips were even visible on the horizon. After landing, he was sent with another reservist soldier, an electrician, to patrol the area. When an Egyptian half-track appeared before them, filled with soldiers and mounted with machine guns on every side. The two soldiers only had light weapons with a few bullets that couldn't stop the half-track for a second. They couldn't turn back, so they stood there in despair and waited for the first shot. And, for lack of a better idea, they aimed their guns at the half-track. But shots didn't come. The half-track came to a halt and they decided to cautiously approach it. They found 18 armed soldiers inside sitting with guns in hand with a petrified look on their faces. They looked at the two Israeli soldiers with great fear as though begging for mercy. Yisrael The cab driver by trade shouted, hands up! I asked the Egyptian sergeant next to me, tell me, why didn't you shoot at us? He answered, I don't know. My arms froze. They became paralyzed. My whole body was paralyzed. And I don't know why. I would highly recommend you guys go home. And look up miracles of the six-day war because this is one story of hundreds. It is absurd how many miracles occur in sequence for that war because God is faithful to his people even if they don't keep the faith with him. His character is revealed in all these different things. If you are faithful, God will tend his fruit through you. God will do all the work. Faith leads to fruit. It just doesn't come by your hand. But you get to share in it. The craziest part about all this, even though faith leads to fruit, it's not something you can do. It is not fruit that you can create. It is fruit that can only come through God. However, you can participate in it by being his dirt, his soil. But it means you've got to stand up and be part of it. There are a ton of opportunities in here. If you guys didn't hear the announcements, look in your bulletins. There are a ton of opportunities for you to be God's soil. Hannah's children's home. They need help with their foster kids. The junior high team. The junior high team. I'm sure would love help. The high school team. I'm sure would love help. Owana. I know would love your help. You can come worship with your brothers and sisters. <clears throat> There's a community Bible study that you could invite friends to. We're going to watch Lord of the Rings. Invite your friends. This is your chance to be and provide fertile soil for other people who need it desperately. Watch what God can do with your participation. Where do you put your hope? Where do you put your faith? Where do you put your time and your passion and your treasure? All those things are where your heart is. Your heart is where all those things lie. Don't put your faith in your job. Don't put your faith in money. Don't put your hope in those things. Put your faith, your hope, your treasure, your love, your passion, put it in Christ. That will create the fertile soil that will produce fruit for others. In the last two messages, I've been encouraging you guys to participate. And this is the reason why. You get to help God bear fruit. You get to be part of the process. Dear Lord, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here, Lord. I pray that they would look inward and ask the hard question is, what is my fruit? We all bear fruit, Father. But does that fruit glorify you? Does that fruit bring forward a chance for others to prepare their soil for God? Lord, I specifically pray for those involved with our youth, Father. Pray for that high school group, Lord, as those kids face Challenges, unlike other youth, have faced in the past, Father, where they have access to not only other people all over the world, but also those people's proclivity for sin, Father. Pray, Lord, that you would lift up those kids, Father, that you would prepare their soil to bear fruit for you, Father, that you would make them <clears throat> excited for what you can do in their lives. <clears throat> I pray for the junior highers, Father. I pray for the junior high ministry. I pray that they would look forward to inviting their friends to church, Lord. They would be able to overcome fears of being judged by their peers. And that transition point, Father, so much is going on in a young person's life, Father. I pray that those kids, that their souls, that their armor, Lord, would be strengthened that they would not be ashamed of their faith. For Awana, Father, I thank you for the long-suffering service of those who have been in Awana for 10, 20 years. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to pound upon their heart to stay in that service, Father. You command us to have faith as a child because, honestly, Lord, that's the only kind of faith we really can have. While we may grow in knowledge, when we may grow in our understanding of the world, let our faith stay childlike, Father, accepting of your word. I thank you for those teachers of Iwana as they share your word, Father, as they put that word into the minds and souls of little ones, Father. They take advantage of that time when we do have the faith of children, Father, when children are open to your truth. Lord, I pray that Awana would stay strong here at this church. Even if we're the last church in the valley, Father, I pray that we would keep Awana and that we would continue to press the word of you into their hearts. Father, for those who aren't kid people, Lord, you know that's me. I pray that we would find places where we can serve, Father. Most of all, Father, I pray that as these people serve, as they participate, they would see the fruit that you bear from their soil, Father. Let us be glorious dirt for you, Father. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.